You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about adverse childhood experiences in primary care. Joining me to talk about this is Dr. Roy Wade, who also practices at the Cobbs Creek Primary Care Site for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you wear a lot of hats at CHOP besides just primary care. So just tell us a little bit about what you do and what your research is here. I think mostly my research focuses on adverse childhood experiences and their life course impact on the health and well-being of kids. My primary lens is looking at how we can incorporate the work or the knowledge that we have around adverse childhood experiences into practice. So what on a daily basis can primary care pediatricians do to help address these experiences amongst our patients and families? And largely recognizing that we're not trauma therapists, what can we do to cooperate or collaborate with agencies within our community that are directly addressing these issues amongst our families? I think that's an important point that we are clinicians and your clinical experiences are informing your research and vice versa, but then you are not alone going to be able to solve these problems. So who else can you partner with and enlist to help these children? Exactly. So assessing children for adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, just to be briefer, can help us identify those who are at risk for trauma or chronic toxic stress. So can you help us start with a definition, first of all, of what are ACEs? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. A lot of times when you look across the research, uh, the researchers, when they do their secondary data analysis, will pull whatever sort of traumatic experiences they can or stressful experiences they can and compile that into a measure that may be different from a a researcher who's done a, a similar study but used assessed for different experiences. I like to think of them as any experiences that lead to prolonged activation of a child's stress response system. And I think the key thing that most people who do this research would say is that it often occurs within the absence of a buffering or supportive relationship from an adult, because we know that the one thing that can consistently mitigate the impact of these experiences is having a consistent and caring relationship with an adult. Right. So they still might have the adverse childhood experience, but it's balanced by that positive relationship. Exactly. And as you mentioned, when we look at research studies they may include different ACEs in what they're looking at, which can sometimes make it confusing of what is the list of what we consider an ACE. So can you explain why some people might use more of an expanded list of ACEs and is that better? Are they sometimes thinking about other community factors versus family factors? And why is there so much diversity in in what we consider an ACE? Well, I think to answer the last question first, there's a lot of diversity in what we consider an ACE because as researchers, we're simply using what's available. The only organization I think that has really tried to go through and develop a comprehensive list of what an adverse childhood experience is or could be is the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. When they did a they convened experts. I can't remember when, but they convened experts to come together and to try to develop this list. But when you look across the research, there really is no sort of 
comprehensive conceptual framework for what adversity is. And I would argue from my own research that it's actually contextual, that it actually depends upon the population you're serving. You know, a lot of the qualitative work that I did here in Philadelphia showed that what is an ACE for one population might not be the same in terms of the populations that we're serving here in the city of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the challenge in terms of like there's been no really groundwork to adequately conceptualize what childhood adversity means. And, you know, the other challenge is that it, it is largely contextual. It depends upon where you are. I think the importance of our work here in Philadelphia, the work we did to replicate the average childhood experience study, was simply to show that that great work that Andi, Anda and Felidi did back in the ni- mid-1990s to really to begin to argue that these early childhood experiences have life course impact was simply just we need to broaden the concept to include events that occur external to the home. If you think about our expanded ACEs, they're largely ACEs that occur within a community, right? Uh, right? That occur outside of the home. And when you think about the original ACEs, they're largely stressful experiences that are occurring within the home. Right. And so basically what we're arguing for is that, you know, the stress comes in different settings and in different contexts, and we need to be agile in capturing what those experiences are. Community violence has been shown to be a stressful experience that has life course impacts, the exposure to racial discrimination, peer victimization, the list goes right. on and on. Right, because you could have an intact family with no domestic violence or food insecurity or divorce or those sorts of ACEs, but live in a community, like you said, with a lot of violence or other toxic stress that that family is exposed to. And so that's still an ACE, even though we don't have those individual level ACEs in that child's life. That's a powerful, powerful point that you make. In our own Philadelphia study, what we found was that 14% of the respondents said that, no, I don't have any stress within my home. Things are actually quite good within my home, but things are actually quite stressful within my community. Right. And so our argument in doing that study was that if you constrain your assessment of ACEs and your focus of ACEs on these family-level events, at least here in Philadelphia, you're going to be missing 14% of the respondents who might endure a significant adversity nonetheless and be at risk for poor health outcomes throughout the life course. That's a population that we as pediatricians can intervene on behalf of. And I think the context that you mentioned is also really interesting because we practice for the same hospital in the same city, but I would also imagine that some of the context that our patients face is very different just from West Philly to South Philly. And so we can't look at the same factors probably across the board like you mentioned. So to follow up on that point, one of the things I constantly advocate for when I give talks across the country around this issue is that instead of necessarily taking a, 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 a set list of experiences that you actually go to your community first to understand how they conceptualize adversity and use that as a framework to develop your questionnaire. Sounds like you're an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> In another life, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the prevalence of ACEs nationally? So do we know anything about the rates of how often kids are exposed to these adverse childhood experiences, however we are defining them? Well, I think it varies depending upon your setting. Right? What we know here in Philadelphia is that some of the original ACEs, such as emotional abuse, domestic violence within the home, uh, incarcerated care providers, were higher than the prevalence that was found in the initial Honda Felitti study, which was comprised of mostly a white middle to upper middle class population. I mean, we found nearly a third of our respondents were endorsing those experiences. 
When it comes to some of the broader average childhood experiences that we included in our study, we found that nearly 40% of our respondents were saying things like they saw someone being hit, beaten, kicked, or stabbed growing up. Nearly a third said they felt racially discriminated against, and nearly a quarter of our respondents said that they lived in unsafe neighborhoods. And that was a Philly-based population. And that was a Philly-based population. And so part of that has to do with the issues of poverty, right, and the incorporation of factors around race and racial discrimination. So I think you're going to see different prevalences when you look across different settings. I think the key point I would like to make to you, which is the point that I think Anda and Felidi tried to stamp home, is that average childhood experiences are an issue for everyone. Right. Part of the challenge of my research is that it's largely focused on, you know, race and poverty because that's who we serve. But what I don't want to get lost in the shuffle is this idea that this is just an issue for poor people or this is just an issue for black and brown people. Average childhood experience is a public health risk for everyone. And no matter what sector you serve, uh, what socioeconomic strata you serve, it's an issue that we need to be thinking about as primary care practitioners. I think that's an important point that we should be screening universally and not based off of our assumptions when a patient walks in the door, if we think they're at risk or not, but that everyone has risks that we should be screening for. Exactly. What are some of the detrimental long-term effects of ACEs on a child's health? Well, the other thing I want to stress is that some of this information was already known. I mean, our folks in sociology and psychology have been documenting the you know suboptimal outcomes for individuals who've been exposed to neglect, and various forms of abuse for, you know, decades. The power of the initial average childhood experience study is that it took all those experiences and rather than weighting them, right, and saying, uh, as we might instinctively say, that sexual abuse is more than divorce or separation, it took them and actually equally put them into one composite score, right, that means that each one of those experiences counts equally, And what they found was the power of that strong association throughout an array of different outcomes. It starts with, as you might expect, health-risk behaviors. So things like smoking, drinking, high-risk sexual behavior. And that sort of makes sense, right? Because you might adopt some of those behaviors to actually deal with or manage the stress around your past experiences or ongoing stressful experiences that you might have. And then moves to mental health, as you might respect as well. You know, those individuals are more likely to have depression, anxiety, PTSD symptoms, and even higher rates of suicidality. But then I think the power of the average childhood experience studies is that these experiences are impactful in terms of physical health conditions, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, COPD, emphysema, cancers. One of the average childhood experience studies even showed that individuals who endure six or more of these experiences, their life expectancy could be decreased by as many as 20 years. Wow. They found that strong of an association. It's a big leap for people to go from thinking, okay, someone's parents got divorced and they live in poverty to they could have diabetes. So, right, I think that's a, a frame shift, like you said, that's a little different than what maybe we already knew, which is that it is associated with high risk taking behaviors and mental health issues. But then how are we getting to these um, separate kind of diagnoses that we don't see as maybe being related directly to trauma? Well, that's one of the things I try to highlight when I talk about this work, right? So as we know it right now, there are two pathways through which ACEs could be associated with these suboptimal life course health outcomes. One is as I said before, the adoption of health risk behaviors. Right. You can see how smoking over a life period to sure. deal with the fact that you were sexually abused as a child or may have ongoing stress as a result of that sexual abuse right. can then lead to things like lung cancer and other and COPD and other uh, problems. Mm-hmm. 
But there's been a parallel body of research, which I'm trying to work with in, in association with, with colleagues, that has shown changes in your stress response system, your hypothalamic pituitary axis system, your production of cortisol, that contribute to these suboptimal health outcomes as well. Cortisol, we know, is helpful, particularly in a situation where you're being interviewed by someone. To a point, right? To a point, right? And we know that kids who have experienced chronic stress, particularly during those susceptible periods of brain development, and we think about this time being between the ages of zero and six, their brains can be actually bathed in cortisol. And cortisol can, at, at that high of a level, can be neurotoxic and lead to you know, destruction of neurons and brain cells and disruption of important synapses that are key for optimal child development. And then also cortisol, because of its side effects, can lead naturally to many of the conditions that we've talked about before, things like increased risk for cancers, hypertension, diabetes, the list goes on and on. And so it's important to underscore those two things. Like part of it is the adoption of these behaviors that help you to cope with the stress that you've experienced, but also changes in your stress response system that can can be maladaptive over time. Right. So the, also the physiologic response. So how do pediatricians screen for ACEs? Mm-hmm. That's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. Right? So if 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 I knew that answer right now, then I would be tenured and I would be retired. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, mean, I think it's it's part of the crux of my early career. You know, I've really tried to work with my mentors to try to one broaden what we understand or conceptualize an adverse childhood experience to be, develop more of a youth-informed or community-informed perspective on what adverse childhood experiences are, and then to understand how we can incorporate just assessment into our practice. I mean, it's really hard, right? Because some of these questions are sensitive in nature, um, and particularly for kids. And then, you know, I think part of the conundrum for pediatricians that I hear all the time is, what what do I do with this information? Right. We don't know where to take the positive screens. Right. And so, you know, the organizations that I know who have done this and done this successfully have tried a number of different strategies. One organization that I know in particular has done an approach called a blinded ACE assessment, where they simply give, they've taken those initial 21 questions that Rhonda and Felitti uh, used and, and broken them down into 10 questions that you know capture each one of those ACE domains. And then they have the parents read the questions and just provide the score. And then use that information, you know, highlighting the point that individuals who have had multiple repeat traumatic experiences are the ones who are most likely to have suboptimal health outcomes. People with A scores one and two, that doesn't necessarily get you off the hook, but the associations are not as strong. So the parents aren't necessarily identifying what the ACE is. So they have some maybe comfort in that confidentiality. Like I don't have to say that I'm struggling to feed my family, but I can report that as a a number at the end. But we found here in some of my work here in Philadelphia that actually families want us to be able to talk about them. But what they want to do is trust that we're going to use the information in a way that is helpful. I actually did some work with the Fairly Qualified Health Center here in Philadelphia administering ACE assessment amongst adults. And they were actually quite open to the process. They had for so long buried this history, right, internally, and begun to blame themselves for these experiences and had no idea that these experiences were somehow affecting their behavior and and potentially affecting their health. Um, And so just having this opportunity to have a conversation with the provider who they have this trusted relationship with, who can then say, I'm sorry that these experiences happened to you. These experiences were not your fault. They can 
influence your health. And so we want to talk with you about some ways that you can help to deal with these, you know, to help you deal with these experiences and connect you to some resources and services that can help. So I think, yes, the blinded approach is a good approach. And for those providers who feel challenged by asking some of those sensitive questions, it can help get over that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that with adequate awareness and guidance, right, and this reassurance that we're trying to use this information to help improve things for you and your family, I think think patients are actually quite open to it. I think the key point, if I could follow up on that point, is that I think as providers, we have to move ourselves out of this medical model of, I ask you a question and there's something that I immediately have to do about it. Right. I think the power in, in having conversations with our families about ACEs is what I said before, is that it helps them in a safe environment to divulge these experiences and understand that they're not to blame for these experiences and to begin to rewrite their narrative. And there's not a quick fix to most of these things. So we are, like you said, in the business of trying to solve a problem, give an answer immediately, but there may not be an answer and it may not be a quick answer. Also, what we know is that these are particularly the people who have four, five, six ACEs. Those are the people who are probably least likely to be able to engage in the services that we already know can help address ACEs. And so having that provider to help hold their hand and guide them through the process can be useful. But also, it can change the way we practice. Some of the things that we might do that may be triggering for patients, right, we will be less likely to do understanding their life experience. It can help us to anticipate families who might have more needs. Right? I mean, you know right. this. Sometimes we only have 15 minutes, 10 right. minutes, maybe five minutes to see a patient. Right. If you look across your schedule and you know that this is a high ACE family, you know that's likely not to be a 15-minute visit. And so right. you can start to adjust your schedule so that you can accommodate that family better. And then I think on a population level, it begins to help us to begin to understand and be able to direct and target and tailor services towards areas of high need. In Washington State, what they did was assess ACEs over a three-year period and then map the prevalence of ACEs by county across the region and then target home visiting program services to high ACE populations. Why can't we do that here in Philadelphia? Right. It seems like we certainly could and should. So... We were talking about the importance of screening universally and not making judgments based on the patient sitting in front of us. But is there a benefit to screening ACEs in children who haven't been exposed to any? Or is there any harm, I guess, in doing it to somebody who has no ACEs in their life? Oh, I think we all are going to have some level of stress. And, uh, you know, this the context of the stress might be different. I also want to change the language a little bit. I totally acknowledge that I'm stealing this from one of my mentors, Joel Fine, but I like to move this from this idea of screening, right, to assessment and knowing, right? The the term he likes to use is ACEs knowing. And so within that context, having a conversation with your families around, you know, the potential stressors that that might be ongoing within their life, I think it's only helpful um, because as long as it's within a safe and non-judgmental setting, where you then have this opportunity to then okay. talk to them about what are some of the potential impacts of them, be able to say, well, here are some of the services that you can access to help to address those issues, even within the population that you would expect has zero ACEs. Because remember what you said back before is that we bring our own biases into this, right? And we, we do that at our own peril. The ACEs are prevalent and common across different socioeconomic strata. And so I think it behooves us to universally ask these questions. As long as we do it, I think that the buzzword is in a trauma-informed fashion. I just like to say, 
as long as you're doing it within a safe and caring environment where people feel loved and supported. Right. Great. And I think it's also, like you said, everyone has stress in their life. So it opens up the conversation and models for children, how we talk about these things and that we can acknowledge them openly with our care providers, that these aren't things that you have to keep to yourself. Right. And the the key point I want to highlight as well is that I'm not saying that the stress of uh, bullying, right, is at the same level as the stress of, or the stress of like not getting the grades you want in in high school is at the same level of someone who's experienced rape or or sexual violence. I'm not saying that, okay, I'm not trying to equate that at all. All I'm saying is that stress is common, right? right? And the context and the detail matters. And being able to have conversations with our families about stress and how it can potentially impact their health is important. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot so far about ACEs in our patients, so in children, but how might prenatal ACEs impact the children that we eventually end up seeing? That's one of the other areas of research that I've been interested in as well. Certainly in animal models, uh, one of my mentors, Tracy Bale, who's now at the University of Maryland, has shown that early life stress or prenatal stress can actually be conferred to offspring, irregardless of their exposure to Mm -hmm. stressful conditions, and can lead to changes in epigenetic and molecular profiles that then are associated with with changes in cognitive ability, but in mouse models, right? right? There is data to show that Maternal average childhood experiences right. are indeed associated with offspring behavioral problems and developmental problems. One of the things that's been missing as part of this conversation is dads mm-hmm. and what dads' experience are. Often the, the, the mechanism thought to be behind that transfer of maternal stress in humans or maternal average childhood experiences in humans to offspring suboptimal outcomes is through prenatal stress or perinatal stress. But we know that also there are, you know, uh, based on Dr. Bale's work, you know, epigenetic factors that are probably being transmitted as well. Some of our work, um, we're actually currently conducting a case control study, and some of our initial work suggests that dad's experience of adverse childhood experiences is also associated with their offspring's behavioral and developmental problems, likely through these epigenetic mechanisms as well. And some of the work suggests that these experiences can impact offspring as many as three generations down. So here's the sobering fact behind that, right? You and I are both working with, you know, on a routine basis, children between the ages of zero and six, and they come in and they have an array of different challenging experiences. And when you or I are identifying and trying to address ACEs within that child's life, not only are we affecting that child's life, but we're affecting their their children, their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. So, I mean, think about the the potential, you know, impact of the work that we do as primary care pediatricians to address these social factors. Yeah, that's amazing. And a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, what can we as pediatricians do to help mitigate the impact of ACEs in the communities where we're working? Well, I mean, so I talked about first and foremost, I mean, people ask me all the time, well, Roy Wade, you're supposed to be this big time expert. And I say, well, no, I'm not, I'm just, you know. I'm I'm struggling just like everyone else is. What do you think, you know, from the research works to help mitigate these experiences? And as I said before, it's a having a relationship with a consistent and caring adult. We know that from an anecdotal basis, right? We know people, perhaps we ourselves have been impacted by these experiences. And whenever you have a successful person who comes back and says, I was abused as a child or I had these experiences as a child, what do they always say? 
you know, that was helpful for them was having that consistent caring adult. Well, the research supports that. So, you know, the important and key point there is that I didn't say parent. And I'm not trying to, you know, subvert the role or the primacy of the role of a parent in a child's life. We all know that that is important in terms of a child's optimal development and growth and well-being. But, you know, sometimes kids don't always have that parent who can be nurturing and supporting. And what the research supports, right, is that any adult who wants to be consistent in caring for a child in their life can help mitigate the impact of those experiences. Right. That means a coach. That means a teacher. That means someone from the clergy. That means a police officer. That also means a physician, mm-hmm. right? And so we can have those roles, right, even if they're on an intermittent basis. Right. But we also can help support parents to develop the skills they need to be more nurturing and supportive. You know, I see tons of parents in my practice, and I've rarely identified a parent who doesn't want to be caring and supportive for their kid, but just might be going through some difficult situations or have their own adverse childhood experiences that makes it hard for them to be nurturing and supportive. And so then connecting them to support programs that, you know, help them to be more of a nurturing and supportive parent but also recognizing the role of stress within their life, right? Mm-hmm. The impact of poverty, violence within the community. Just like kids don't live in a bubble, parents don't parent in a bubble. Right. And so those experiences, right? If they're struggling with their job, it's hard, right? Then to come home and be nurturing and supportive for your kid. And so what are some of the ways that we can work collaboratively across the systems of care within our communities, right? To help to alleviate those stressors. And then recognizing that we're the hub and the center of a wheel. Right. Mm-hmm. And for good or bad, during the sensitive periods of development, those kids have to come see us, right? right? Because they need their vaccinations. And so we have this great opportunity, right, to identify kids when they're most susceptible to these experiences and then connect their families to the resources within the communities that we know work to mitigate the impact or eliminate the exposure to ACEs outright. And so, you know, the thing I try to encourage my colleagues to do is not to feel like you have to be a psychotherapist, right? You only really have to be human, which all of us are, right? And come in and say, I am so sorry these experiences happened to you. You were not deserving of these experiences. And then work to connect them through our social workers and then connections with other colleagues to the resources that they need to help decrease the stress within their life and prevent exposure to ACEs amongst their kids. Parents get it. Can I tell you a story? And sure, this story yeah. Might, I would love a story. It, it might help to um, elucidate this point. I held a focus group as part of one of my papers, and I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast because, you know, pediatrics is going to ding me for it. But one of the focus groups, unfortunately, had only two moms showed. But they had come from across the city, and I felt so bad, you know, not holding the focus group, so I decided to hold it. And these two moms, they brought their children, too. And so, fortunately, we had some individuals who could take care of their children while we were holding the focus group. and. What the two moms did was, you know, the job of the focus group was for them to tell me about their average childhood experiences growing up. And basically, you know, they called out about 70 things between the two of them. And a lot of the things were around feeling um, marginalized as an African-American female in their community. What they said to me was that so many of their cousins, their male cousins and their brothers um, had been either incarcerated, right, or unfortunately were killed such that the moms felt that whatever boys were left could do no wrong. Right. And the girls, you know, could do no right. Mm. And so, you know, they, you know, a lot of the things they said were just that feeling of being marginalized within their communities. 
Wow. And these are two really astute moms because at the end of the focus group, you know, this was a focus, a series of focus groups I was doing to, you know, understand how young people who grew up in poverty conceptualized adverse childhood experiences. And they started to push me and say, well, why are you doing this? Right. And we were finished with the focus group. And I said, you know, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm, we're talking about adverse childhood experiences. And so they kept pushing me, well, what are adverse childhood experiences? And so I went through the whole spiel about how they affect right. life course health and what you can do about them and how they can be mitigated. And, and on their own, they started to count up their mom's adverse childhood experience score. Hmm. And then they started to say, well, that might be why my mom behaved that way towards me. But what was probably more powerful is that they looked over at their kids, right? And they started to calculate their own ACE score, mm-hmm. right? And the kids developing ACE score. And without me saying a word, um, they started to think of ways that they could be more nurturing and supportive for their kids. Right. I say that story to say that the point is that we often feel like we need to have the answer, right? right? Sometimes folks just need a safe place where they can think about these things and just knowledge, and then they can come up with the solutions on their own. Yeah, that is a really powerful example. And I think it gets at a lot of what we do in pediatrics of thinking about what your childhood was like in the childhood that you want for your child. Absolutely. Um, And so calling that to people's attention that just because something has been this way before doesn't have to be that way in the future. Absolutely. Um, So in closing, I think just I want to hear a little bit about what you are working on and and kind of what we're doing at CHOP in this area. Well, I think there's a lot. I can't divulge some of the things that are going on because I'm not leading those things. But I think there's a lot of work both in the emergency department and in primary care to start to incorporate these social factors to think about this work from a population level. I think our leadership and a lot of the people who are doing research and administration and this work have long, for a long time recognized the role of poverty and stress in outcomes. On a national level, you know, I think there is a movement towards population health and making organizations accountable for the outcomes. And there's this general recognition that if, you know, particularly for cities like Philadelphia, if you're not addressing the factors around poverty, then you're not really going to move the needle. I think there's another area, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this in terms of addressing health disparities. Some of the work that I'm doing right now is looking at how differential exposure to average childhood experiences can affect racial differences in health outcomes. And so I think there's going to be a movement towards, you know, how do we use this to help decrease health disparities? We have to think about, you know, systems work as well, right? And so part of the challenge is that we sit on a lot of resources here in healthcare. And if we could figure out ways to mobilize those resources to schools and communities, right, then that's going to go a long ways in terms of um, moving the needle and improving outcomes, you know, across our entire city. Yeah, we have to reach our patients where they are. Exactly. Great. Well, we appreciate all of the work you're doing here at CHOP and for sharing it with the audience who's listening. And I hope it gives people a lot of food for thought of what they can do in their own practice and in their community. And we'll be looking out for more of your publications coming out soon. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.